Most people aren't aware that there are so many young people who are caregivers. Very often we see it's the woman in her 50s or 60s who's caring for her parents or her spouse. When I first became aware of it, I was absolutely astounded. Hi, I'm Bobby, a certified caregiving consultant and a certified caregiving educator. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate. And this is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. Here we focus on the caregiver, offer our practical insights, and share some emotional support. And we might even share a laugh or two, because we all know that, well, laughter is in fact the best medicine. And you've given me a number of reasons to laugh over the last 32 years. Don't forget the wine, Mike. So is it the wine or is it that I'm funny? (laughs) And I never forget the wine. We're becoming more and more aware of um, dementia and the impact not only on the elderly, but also on entire families. Um, There's an entire sandwich generation where people are caring for their adult loved ones. It's also raising children. And so that brings us to today's guest, whose broad background in healthcare and dedication to diminishing caregiver struggles led her to establish in 1998 a nonprofit organization which has transformed itself to become the American Association for Caregiving Youth. Educated at Johns Hopkins, Montclair State, and New York University, she obtained her PhD in 2004 and never expected her doctoral research to uncover the high prevalence of family health situations. Please welcome to our show the founder and president of the American Association of Caregiving Youth, Connie Siskowski. Hi, Connie. Hello, and thank you. You know, we, I didn't even realize it until we were talking with you about the situation that we had in our own family with, with a very young person being a caregiver. We didn't think about it. Our granddaughter, Mallory, um, was living just two doors away from her grandmother when her grandmother was um, diagnosed. diagnosed with dementia. And we were visiting and we were commenting on how, how Mallory would watch out for her grandmother. She would help her when she was walking. She would cut her food for her and make sure that she didn't try to eat too much uh, all at once. You could just see the relationship between the two of them where the grandmother might get impatient with her daughter. She was quite patient with her granddaughter. And to see that relationship, we thought it was really special, but we didn't think of Mallory as a caregiver, but absolutely she was. Yes, she was. So we um, we have seen several instances where when a dementia or some type of memory um, loss is among one of the care receivers, um, how they will relate to a younger person rather than their own adult son or daughter. Well, there's, there's a special relationship between grandparents and, and, uh, <laughs> and grandchildren. Uh, what is it Mike says? They have the I, common enemy? I, I say they have the same enemy. <laughs> 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 so how about you tell us a little bit of the American Association of Caregiving Youth? So, um, and I'm going to abbreviate and just call it AACY because it's much less 
parts of a mouthful. Yes. But um, <laughs> it really has three divisions. <laughs> um, one is the Caregiving Youth Project, in which we provide direct services to middle and high school students in Palm Beach County, Florida. Uh, the second is the Caregiving Youth Institute, which serves to connect kids with each other, to advocate, to participate in research, and to educate uh, the public and professionals. So that spells the word care. And then finally, uh, we have developed affiliate uh, networks and uh, some national partnerships. So um, we have used the Caregiving Youth Project as kind of our model of support, and we have found that it really works by, you know, because people say, well, where do you find the kids? Well, we go to where they are, and that is in school. So we have a formal relationship with the school district here in Palm Beach County, which is uh, the 10th largest in the country, and it covers the whole county. The county is about the size of Delaware. So it's a pretty big geographic area. And uh, we identify the caregivers in sixth grade. And then we continue working with them through uh, their high school graduation. Um, in school, we provide direct services through skills building groups, as well as lunch and learn sessions. And the lunch and learns are based on the top diagnoses of the care receivers. And um, and then we also do some individual counseling in school. Uh, we'll do a home visit to identify what other needs might be to strengthen the family, because we have found that by strengthening the family, it takes some of the burden off of the child, and it really works to improve family relationships. And then because the kids are losing part of their childhood, uh, we provide some sponsored fun activities which can be simple things like going on a picnic or going to the beach or bowling um, to uh, an overnight camp, which we call Camp Treasure. Um, and all of these things, um, we focus on managing stress and as well as academic and other personal support. So we've had great results with a high school graduation rate of about 98% which is um, probably about 20% higher than the county average if you looked at a similar population of students who are minorities and financially insecure. Wow. Well, see, that's interesting to me because the, when you're talking about from sixth graders through high school, that's, that's a period of their lives where they're already stressed with all of the changes in their their bodies and their social situation and expectations about what does come next. Right. And then we add the caregiving on top of it. Yeah. And it's a time when, you know, the hormones are raging and everyone wants to be normal. You don't want to be different. And so the kids may, you know, put on their mask when they go to school um, and put on a happy face because uh, they don't really readily share um, until they feel it's safe. Um, with their peers or even teachers um, about what is going on in the home because often uh, there's a fear that if people on the outside know what these kids are doing that they might be taken away. And in fact, one of our state representatives, when we had first talked to him about the issue, he said, well, you know, children shouldn't be doing this. They should be in foster care. And, oh, no. Uh, oh, no. I know it's unbelievable, but you know, it's 
it's out of a lack of understanding. People don't know, they don't understand if they've never, if they've always had resources and never had to, um, you know, fight some of the challenges that our families face um, and really the strength um, that the children build um, and the courage um, and, and the maturity. Uh, one of our, one of the boys who was graduating and he's now over in California doing graduate work. He said, you know, Dr. Connie, I, I never realized until I was with, with my peers when I got out of school, how much further ahead of them I am because I know how to do many things that they don't know how to do. Yes. (laughs) And what kind of things might they be? What kind of jobs, so to speak, are these youthful caregivers doing in the home? Are they, are they taking over a lot of the housekeeping duties? Are they helping to feed somebody in the house? What is it that, that they're doing? Yeah, it, well, what they do very much mirrors what an adult family caregiver does. So they may do everything from um, ADLs, feeding, dressing, bathing, toileting, helping with mobility, um, and trans- and um, incontinence care to uh, instrumental activities of daily living, such as grocery shopping or meal preparation, giving medications, um, managing medical equipment, uh, even suctioning, tube feeding. Um, it really goes across the whole gamut, and it's very unique to each family. So that's why we offer a menu of services to support the children and their families um, because everybody's different. Uh, one size doesn't fit all. No, no, it sure doesn't. So you had mentioned earlier that you have some national partners. Um, could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So, well, right now I'm on the uh, on the faculty for the Ray's Family Caregiver Council. Um, one of our national partners is the Caregiver Action Network, uh, which used to be the National Family Caregivers Association. Um, we have done work with Psych Armor, a program out of or a nonprofit out of um, Southern California that is educating military families who are dealing with uh, caregiving issues. Um, and we also have a caregiving youth research collaborative, which involves professionals from about nine universities across the country. Another partner that we're really proud of is an organization called Hope Loves Company, and their focus is on uh, children who assist a family member with ALS. You know, I'm glad that you mentioned ALS. That's something that affects one of our family members as well. And and that care is very different than dementia care, but it is all-encompassing, that's for sure. And we want our listeners to know that we're here for caregivers of all types. And um, it certainly sounds like the kids, the teens that you're working with are facing all different kinds of situations. Well, they are. And look at how many people who have a chronic illness have multiple diagnoses. Absolutely. So not often that there's, you know, one single um, health condition that is affecting uh, the family. And it does affect the whole family. Um, And I think that's something that people in general, don't recognize. I have a question for you. You had mentioned about the the fellow who is in California working on his graduate studies. Yes. Did I get that right? Yes, me too. So 
are you finding that some of these um, young folks, these young caregivers, that when they go on to college, that they are going back to um, the caregiving field or the medical field? Um, does that spur them, like give them their calling to do this as a profession? Yeah, it often does. As Yeah, it often does, um, like as it did in my case. Um, but we also, like the, the boy who's in California, he's more of a techie person. And mm-hmm. so um, I don't know where he'll wind up. But what's interesting, too, is that sometimes if a family member has a rare disease, there's an impetus to try and participate in research to find a cure or in pharmaceuticals. Um, but also, you know, we kind of want to make sure that um, just because that is the field that the children are exposed to, that they're comfortable with, that it also gives them joy in terms of their work life. Um, because, you know, as we all know, that that's just such an important component. But we also, you know, on the flip side, as our population is aging, we sure do need more healthcare workers in the future. Absolutely. But... If if you don't have a good experience and if you don't feel supported and you feel alone and frustrated and angry, you're more likely to drop out of school and you're less likely to want to go into healthcare. One of our former board members took care of his grandmother and he thought that he would like to go on and be a nurse. So after she died, he uh, worked as a volunteer in a hospital and then he became a banker. So it, it all depends on, uh, you know, what what brings you joy. Well, I hear that from, from adult caregivers, too. Some of us, um, you know, I was asked, would I do it again? I said, absolutely, in a heartbeat. But there are also caregivers out there that say, no way, no how, never would I do this again. So it just depends on on how you are inspired and how you react to it, which leads me to the question, is there a high incidence of depression amongst young caregivers? Well, statistically, um, that has been documented in several studies, including the national study. But what we have found is, and it hasn't been proven through research, but um, we do an end-of-the-year uh, survey among the students that we serve, and it's, um, we see um, them feeling more confident, feeling good about themselves, being able to manage stress. And those are not the kinds of things that coexist with depression. So that indicates to me that we need more programs like yours. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's a long-term relationship. So it's not like, you know, we, we help them for a year and then we drop them. But the average student stays with us about five and a half years. And, and so, I mean, there is also good documentation of how, you know, one adult can change a child's life, one caring adult. We do have a mentor program, and we see some of um, the, the such positive results also with our mentors and mentees. And it's, it's kind of interesting because we have like three or four mentors who have more than one mentee. And one of um, one of them, who happens to be a board member of ours, was telling me. He said, "You know, this one boy has asked me, how do you talk to a girl?'" 
<laughs> I'm still trying and to so figure that you out. Don't, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but you know what? If you don't have a father figure, right? You know, you're curious about that. Um, one dad who was older uh, wanted a mentor for his daughter because he didn't know how to take her to buy a bra. You know, some of those things <laughs> that we take for granted that families are dealing with, it's so important to have somebody walk alongside them. I have a question in that um, the group that you're working with, I think it's it's absolutely amazing. But there are much younger children who are living in a household where somebody has dementia. Do you know if there is an outreach for them? Well, um, if we get a referral from somebody, you know, who is in the elementary school, we will um, do a home visit and, you know, try and get them the resources. And we know for sure that, you know, when a student enters sixth grade and they become uh, a member of our program, they didn't begin in sixth grade. Right. So, you know, we wish that we would have the resources to um, to help kids in elementary school, but all of our materials are really geared towards middle school and up at this time. So did you have a lot of difficulty getting in with the schools, getting them to work with you? Well, the original research that I did was in was with a survey called the What Works Survey, and it was asking kids what helps them learn and what, what didn't. And it was conducted between the school district and uh, Palm Beach Atlantic University here in Palm Beach County. So because they were involved from the beginning, you know, and they saw the data, um, they were the ones actually who encouraged us to begin in middle school. And then you know, it was at a time, because this was several years ago, when schools were looking at, you know, what's wrong with the teachers? What's wrong with the schools? They weren't really looking at what's beyond the boundaries of the schools that are creating barriers for students to learn. So um, it took some time until the national data came out. And then the silent epidemic looked at young adults who dropped out of school and saw that 22% had dropped that they dropped out to care for a family member. So um, by now, schools started, you know, being concerned about uh, dropout rate and how students were learning or not. So it was, you know, timing is everything, right? So that was kind of one of the um, impetus that the school district was involved. And then, you know, because we have such a proven track record, it's really helping the school district increase its graduation rate, which then, you know, gives them more recognition, I guess, among other school districts in the state and, and nationally. And you obviously have the lessons learned so they can do it better, faster than going right. through the learning curve, obviously. Right. So that's how, that's our kind of spread strategy that, um, you know, we know that it's important to have those local community resources because we can't do it alone. We have many collaborative partners who help um, to uh, provide care to strengthen the families. And so um, it's better to partner with an existing nonprofit it's kind of like a nonprofit franchise model so that uh, 
we can give them what they need to begin to serve this population and support them in the process rather than thinking we can go and start a chapter and, and do it all ourselves. Right. Now, you had mentioned the Lunch and Learn. Do you, do you do training for people to go into the schools to do that, or do you rely on people from, say, the Alzheimer's organization or something like that to do for, as a resource well, for this? Well, the schools, especially with you know, all the violence going on, are pretty uh, strict about who goes into the schools. So um, our family specialists, who are our paid staff, are MSWs. And so um, they're assigned to different schools and kind of the kids in those schools become their, um, their families. And so um, we actually have help from uh, sometimes other social work students or medical students in making sure our community resources are updated. But the Lunch and Learns are conducted um, by our family specialists. And sometimes a community person uh, from, you know, will go with them, but they need to be with them typically unless they have special clearance. They're not allowed in the school, you know, independently. Right. Mm -hmm. I was interested in what you talked about, the, the, the grouping of the uh, nonprofits that working together. I think that's a very interesting model that other communities could learn from. Yeah, and what we've also found is the importance because until we get caregiving youth recognized and some uh, supports from the state or federally, um, there's not the revenue stream uh, for nonprofits to help them. So um, that's that's really part of what's needed strategically uh, to better recognize uh, these children. So an example of how we work with a collaborative partner is that there's one agency here called Sweet Dream Makers, and um, they, have, they provide beds. So if we go do a home visit like we did not that long ago, and there was a grandmother who had a stroke, and, and um, she was sleeping on a mattress on the floor in the living room. So we were able to get a bed for her and we've gotten beds for like twin beds instead of uh, three kids, you know, or bunk beds with a, sometimes there's a lot of people in one household mm -hmm. um, that are the same bed and that doesn't always make for a good night's sleep. So um, that's been a really valuable uh, resource. And then in terms of getting some of the other equipment, um, we work with a company called Clinics Can Help, and we make them a, a small donation, and then we're able to get some otherwise unavailable to them medical equipment that the family needs to increase uh, safety. We've also worked with, um, in the home, like a, even a walker or, you know, a, a high-rise uh, or bedside commode, um, and we've helped with ramps. Um, it's hard to to have to lift somebody in and out of the house in a wheelchair. Right. Um, so it's been a, a variety of um, of supports from other resources that can help to 
reduce the stress on the family, reduce the stress on the child. Well, certainly the work that you do in the community is absolutely invaluable. And, you know, you mentioned about limited resources available in other places. And I think it has to be, at least in part, over the fact that most people aren't aware that there are so many uh, young people who, who are caregivers. When we look at statistics, very often we see it's, it's a woman in her 50s or 60s who's caring for her, her parents or her spouse. We don't think about all of these kids that are doing this. And when I first became aware of it, I was absolutely astounded. And I imagine the information that you're sharing today is going to be very enlightening to our listeners uh, yes, wherever they might so. be. And I'm so thankful that um, you are including me and in helping to raise awareness about this important issue because these children are our future. And you know what happens if they don't graduate, their taxable earnings are less. There's more disease. There's more crime. There's more teen pregnancy. So it's really an investment in not only the individual and family, but also in our society for the future. You're absolutely right. You could not be more correct. Well, Dr. Connie, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your time and your information. I know I've had a couple of aha moments here, and I'm sure our listeners will too. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. We really appreciate the opportunity. So with the start of the tsunami of families caring for loved ones at home, it's not hard to believe that we have over 1.3 million children under 19 living in a household with a loved one who needs care. And that's just going to continue to grow. Yes. The key word there is it's the start of the tsunami. So, yeah, it was interesting um, that she talked about national partnering and how the nonprofits are banding together and creating kind of a consortium. That's very comforting to hear because you don't hear that often. Um, another thing she brought up that made my jaw drop a little bit, that there was a 20-plus percent dropout rate. And it wasn't until they started looking at why they were dropping out, what's going on with the kids, as opposed to the teachers aren't doing a good job, that they realized that this was a problem and then they went to find the American Association of Caregiving Youth to help with the issue. And they've had a tremendous success, she said. Absolutely. Wow, that's amazing. You can find more information about Connie and the Association of Caregiving Youth on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show Go to iTunes and post a review. Reviews are very important. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Let us know how we can help you. Or if you have a question you'd like for us to address. Or if you'd just like to say hi. Now, to find out more about us or where Bobby will be speaking next, head on over to rogerthat.show. That's roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show. Missing Link is a proud partner of Hearing Charities of America, a nonprofit organization that supports those who are deaf or hard of hearing. You can find out more about HCA on our website or go to hearingcharities.org. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content.